1: Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha.
2: No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with
3: Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. The Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak and a peg. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told and you are among friends. Carlos Kajina is my technical producer. Ryan White is the live stream producer. Please take a moment and check out the YouTube and Rumble channel Strange Planet. All right. So somewhere in the world, right now, there's an episode of The Twilight Zone playing. It remains one of the most cleverly crafted and iconic television shows of all time. Nicholas Parisi is uh, standing by to give us a glimpse of the series and the man behind The Twilight Zone, Rod Serling. Serling was one of television's Brightest, most literate pioneers and a true believer in the medium, he was known as the angry young man of Hollywood early on in his career, clashing with studio execs and sponsors in his quest to loosen the corporate grip of censorship. He battled to write freely on controversial topics and he would maintain that outspokenness as an artist and a thinker throughout his career. He's most revered for having had the ability to produce works of drama that probed the human psyche in an imaginative and thoroughly unique way. His work demonstrated a deep love for humanity and a strong belief of a better tomorrow. Over the next two hours, we're going to explore the life and times of Rod Serling and his work, The Twilight Zone pre-Twilight Zone, and the Night Gallery, and more. Nicholas Parisi serves on the board of directors of the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation, a charitable organization dedicated to preserving and promoting Rod Serling's legacy. He's a former staff writer and editor for Good Times Magazine in Long Island. He's also a musician and a vocalist. Back in 2010, his former band, Arioch, released a CD with the Serling-inspired title Between Light and Shadow on Retrospect Records. He lives in, I'm going to need some help with this one, (laughs) Ronkonkonkoma, New York. And he's He's the author of Rod Serling, His Life, Work, and Imagination, with a foreword by Rod Serling's daughter, Anne Serling. Nicholas is also presenting Serling Fest 2022 being held this August in Binghamton, New York. Nicholas, welcome. How are you?
4: I'm doing great, Richard. How are you doing?
3: I'm well. Okay, so first of all, help me out with the uh, the where are you living exactly? It's it's Ronkonkoma.
4: Ronkonkoma. <laughs> Ronkonkoma. Yes. There you go. Your instinct, may, your instinct may be to say Ronkonkoma, but it's Ronkonkoma.
3: Ronkonkoma. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Um, well, let's let's um, promote the uh, the uh, Surling Fest 2022 right out of the gate because um, this is great stuff you're doing. This is in Binghamton, New York. Give us the dates and the particulars.
4: It is. Thanks. And I, I appreciate that because this is a big event for us. It's going to be held August 12th, 13th, and 14th in Binghamton, New York. And Binghamton it was Rod Sterling's hometown. Uh, this was where he grew up. Rod Sterling was born in Syracuse, New York, which is about an hour north of Binghamton. But when he was just about a year and a half old, the family moved to Binghamton, and he spent the rest of his formative years in Binghamton and he loved his hometown It was just it's just one of those things he he loved his hometown he had he held a, a great nostalgia for his hometown a great yearning to go back to his his, his childhood in Binghamton and uh, it's something he carried with him for the rest of his life so the Rod Sterling Memorial Foundation is based in Binghamton uh, it was founded in Binghamton and this is going to be our sixth Sterling Fest and uh, it's going to be technically at three different places, but they're all very, very close together in Binghamton. But the main event is going to be on August 13th at the Forum Theater, the Broome County Forum Theater, uh, all day long, from 9 a.m. till 10 o'clock at night. And we do all sorts of things. We have screenings. We have trivia. We have raffle giveaways. We have a whole bunch of really great authors who are going to join us this year. Uh, Mark Zickery, author of The Twilight Zone Companion, will be with us. Uh, Anne Serling, of course, will be with us. Uh, Mark who wrote everything I know I need everything I need to know I learned in the Twilight Zone will be with us. Uh, I'll be there my book Rod Sterling is Life work and Imagination you mentioned uh, so it's it's a it's a gathering of probably the, the greatest gathering of sterling experts you're ever going to find in one place all together for three days of of nothing but tribute to, to Rod Sterling and the Twilight Zone, but also uh, things outside of the Twilight Zone as well.
3: Not too many television writers have. You know, scholarly works written about them, uh, but there have been a number of of scholarly works written about Rod Serling, including yours. How did you become a Rod Serling scholar?
4: <laughs> well, p- quite, quite um, unintendedly, I guess. Um, not, not purposely, that's for sure. I, uh, you know, I was, I was like everybody else. I, I was a huge Twilight Zone fan when I was a kid. I watched it. You know, I was I was mesmerized by it from the time I was probably nine or ten years old. I just I just fell in love with the show. And I just became interested in learning more about what Rod Serling wrote outside of the Twilight Zone. So I became kind of a collector of information. I just wanted to gather as much information as I could about all the things Rod Serling wrote. And I have a kind of a completist mentality, you know, as as a collector, I think most collectors are like that. If you, Collect something you want to collect all of that thing, you know. If you collect, you know, comic books, you want to collect maybe all of the one character that you like the most. You you want to be complete about it. So, so I did that with with information, I wanted to be to compile the most complete uh, list and archive, so to speak, mental archive of Rod Serling's career. And so that was the that was the idea behind the book, and 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 it just uh, kind of went from there. It kind of jumped from that that thinking uh, into a book.
3: How was his 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 character shaped growing up in Binghamton? I'm guessing you know he was born what 1925, so I'm guessing he he listened to, you know, radio dramas and mysteries and The Shadow and all that. But were there any particular shows or any particular performers that really influenced Rod Serling?
4: Yeah, sure. Well, well, he's born Christmas Day 1924, so almost 1925, and he yeah he grew up um, in what he would be what he would consider to be an idyllic. Time. I mean, an idyllic. Uh, he had an idyllic childhood. He, at least that's the way he looked at it. And you know, he had an older brother, Robert. His older brother Robert is, was, I believe, six years older than him. And he and his brother loved the things that you could, have, you know, that you think they would love. They loved uh, radio shows. The Shadow, for sure. Um, Rod very quickly became a big fan of Arch uh, Oboler. Um, uh, and norman corwin those were the two those were the two that were big influences on him as far as terms in terms of radio writers um but rod pretty much and, and he loved movies too of course he, he loved everything that you would imagine comic books the pulp magazines he read he he was a reader he loved king kong was probably his favorite movie um so he was a, kind of a typical kid for the time i think i think and and he just um you know, he filled his mind with those things, with the, with the radio shows and with pulp magazines and things like that. And then, you know, when he was 18 years old in high school in Binghamton, the day after high school graduation, he went off to war. And that is kind of the dividing line for Rod Serling. I mean, he had this, this again, this idyllic childhood that he, you know, remembered so fondly and the, it ended very, very abruptly by him joining the army and going off to war. And um, that that shaped him in terms of, he then idealized that 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 time of innocence that he and he was always trying to recapture it from that from that moment forward.
3: How did the the experience in the Second World War and, and maybe afterwards? How did that shape his? Because he had his tremendous sense of justice. How did that shape that?
4: Well. Well, for one thing, I do think that for to some extent, I think that Rod Sterling was born with that sense of justice. I really do. I I think that it was inherent in him somehow. It could have been genetic. Uh, He could have gotten it from his father, who was, by all accounts, a very, very smart man and a very, very moral man. Uh, So it certainly could have come from from him. And it could also have come from the fact that he was a little guy. Rod Sterling was a little guy. He was five feet five, maybe, you know, on a, t- on a tall day, I like to say he was five, five. Um, and he, uh, not that I don't think there's ever been any stories about Rod being bullied. Uh, Rod was a very, very um, popular kid. He was a gregarious kid. He liked to talk. He had lots and lots of friends. He played baseball. So I don't think he was ever bullied, but he had a sense of, uh, what it would be like to be bullied. And, uh, you know, I think that when he joined the army, uh, you know, listen, he, was, he was Jewish. He wanted to fight the Nazis, you know. But I think he also had this idea that he was this, uh, this country invading, <laughs> invading other countries. And, you know, we got to do something about this. And the experience shaped him just uh, profoundly. I mean, it just, um, it affected everything that Rod Serling was from that point forward, as a man, as a writer, as a thinker. He saw, you know, he saw some terrible, terrible things during the war. He saw some, some major combat. He came back from the war, certainly with PTSD. I mean, they didn't call it that at the time, but he certainly had it. He had nightmares, he had flashbacks and, um, he had to deal with that for the rest of his life. And it just, it shaped everything he wrote from that point forward. He wrote lots and lots of war related stories in and out of the twilight zone. And, um, it just, yeah, it changed his way of thinking, I think, uh, in general.
3: At what point did he s- decide he was going to write uh, for this new medium of television?
4: Well, he was there. He was. Rod got into television right at the ground floor. You know, he, he was he was there at the very, very infancy of, te- of television, 1949, 1950. His first uh, television show produced on a national uh, program was in 1950. And um, so he started out as a radio writer. He started by writing radio scripts and he and by collecting rejection slips. I mean, he sent uh, he sent scripts to every radio series on the face of the earth and they were all rejected over and over and over again. Even after he got an agents, they were still rejected over and over and over again. But um, he saw the writing on the wall when television came to be. Um, When when television came around, there were still, you know, there were those people who were snobs about television. There were people who thought, you know, this isn't going to last. It's a phase. It's, um, you know, they had, you know, kind of maybe some misplaced loyalty to radio like radio is more cerebral and and rod had none of that rod saw the writing on the wall he said this is the future so, uh, tv is where it's at so he jumped on the tv bandwagon so to speak i mean right away with and with both feet so he just started sending really some of the same great scripts he wrote for radio he would send to the to television series and it took him a long time to break through but um but he finally did and then took off
3: as a as a collector of all things rod sterling do you have any of his Original scripts?
4: Well, not original, but yes, I do have copies of lots of them. Um, yeah. There, you know, in researching the book, there are some archives that uh, that hold Rod Sterling's collections of the original of the original scripts, of his original radio scripts, original Twilight Zone scripts, original everything. And I was able to go through those archives in depth um, when I was doing research. So I, I do have lots of that stuff. And and some of it is very, very interesting. You know, uh, he was writing you know, one misconception I think about Rod Sterling is that *The Twilight Zone* was the first time that he w- wrote science fiction, and that is absolutely not the case. He wrote lots of science fiction before *The Twilight Zone*. It didn't; most of it didn't get produced because television just wasn't doing science fiction really before *The Twilight Zone*. Uh, very little, anyway, and um, so so it wasn't you know it wasn't produced. But but he did write. He lo- he always loved science fiction. Loved it since he was a kid, reading those magazines, *Analog* and, and *Amazing Stories* and things like that. Uh, so, so yeah, so he wrote a lot of science fiction and, and fantasy, time travel stuff, and going all the way back to his early radio days, he, he was into that.
3: Uh, a Town Turns to Dust has some science fiction elements, wouldn't you say?
4: Uh, well, A Town Has Turned to Dust, uh, if we're talking about the same, the same script, that is the the script that Rod wrote uh, that was, was supposed to be based on the Emmett Till right. kidnapping.
2: Yeah, and the, they they yeah. they
4: later they later remade it as a science fiction uh uh movie, made for like made for cable movie, and which was a a real good idea, I think, actually, to take that script and set it in a in a science fiction context. So they they put some science fiction in it, but, uh, but they're, they're, yeah, yeah, that would that came later, yeah.
3: But he uh, and we'll come back around to that. But he did try and. Sort of dis- sometimes he used science fiction right to disguise to get it past the message these controversial messages past the ad agencies and the and the censors and so forth. But we'll come back around to a town turns to dust. Um, just sort of one more kind of I don't know philosophical question before we dive re- right into his career, and that is when you talk to to younger people uh, and maybe they only know of the Twilight Zone because of the reboot that came out a couple of years ago. And how do you, what do you tell them about Rod Serling? How do you explain to them uh, why he's so important even today?
4: Wow. That's, that's a really great question, Rich. Um, You know, well, the first thing I would say is that you would be surprised at how many younger people do know the Twilight Zone, uh, the original Twilight Zone. You know, they, um, first of all, being the phrase Twilight Zone is just in our language. You know, you don't even have to ever seen an episode of the original series to know what the Twilight Zone means. You know, you know that, you know if you're in the twilight zone you know it means something's off kilter something is weird something strange something just doesn't make sense so they know that and um if they know the twilight zone then you know you're you got you're, your work is half done for you because because they they know what the imagination of rod sterling was all about and they know what those shows are like and they they, and they probably enjoy it but when i tell you know forget about kids and when i tell anybody what's important about rod sterling it's it's, the, it's his humanity. It's the humanity that he put into his work, into the scripts, whether they were science fiction, fantasy or not. It's the the humanity that, that he put into those characters, into the messages. If The Twilight Zone was just a collection of twist endings that were shocking for the moment and then went away, we wouldn't be talking about it right now. We're only talking about it because Rod Sterling made that show more than a collection of twist endings or spaceships or rockets or, or anything visual. It always had something deeper beneath the surface. And that's, what's made it last for 60 for 60 years now.
3: Um, so before twilight zone, there was a uh, craft the theater. There was playhouse 90. There was the steel hour. Um, what, what work from that period jumps out at you as maybe his finest
4: well, I think I think Recurrent for a Heavyweight for for Playoffs ninety it was the second episode of Playoffs ninety, and that was almost certainly Rod's favorite piece of his own work. He was very very proud of Recurrent for a Heavyweight. Uh, I make the point in the book. And I don't think I had to make this point really. Uh, anybody who knows Rod Sterling kind of is aware of this already. But, but Rod was his own tough, toughest critic. Rod was his own the heart- harshest critic. He he never gave himself a break, and he would criticize his own work to the nth degree. But Re- Record for Heavyweight was the one piece of work that he never said a bad word about. Record for Heavyweight that was something he really put his heart and soul into, and it was a triumph on all on all levels. And uh, he was very very proud of it. So I mean that that one does jump out at me. That's uh, as being the finest probably before the twilight zone yeah
3: uh he did a little uh, boxing of his own didn't he
4: he sure did yeah during in the army in the army during basic training he was uh he uh, represented his unit the 511th parachute infantry regiment and uh by all accounts he, he won 16 or 17 bouts in a row he was a lightweight or a featherweight really a featherweight uh and uh in his 17th or 18th bout he got demolished he got uh he got killed he broke his nose and he was really just uh knocked for a loop and he said all right i think i'm done with i think i'm done with this so that was it but but he always had a respect for boxing and for boxers he had an affection for boxers in particular uh, because he just felt that these you know people who dedicate themselves to boxing they are not prepared really to do anything else and it's such a finite you know any athlete really, but boxers particularly have such a finite shelf life. You know they can only do this for so long, and then when they're done, what do they do? What do they, where do they go with their life? And that was record for heavyweight. That was the the existential you know question about that show. Like, where does this guy go after he's done boxing? When they tell him, "Hey, you can't box anymore," what's he going to do with his life? And that, that Rod Stern was very uh, um, sensitive to that to that question.
3: Uh, I saw an interview. And th- this is legendary. I think all Rod Serling fans talk about that um, interview he did with Mike Wallace, which was like 1958 or 59. It was just before he he started The Twilight Zone, but he was alluding to this next series that he was going to do. and And it was almost like he was looking forward to it as almost an opportunity to maybe relax a little bit because he had been at war with... The ad agencies and the sponsors and the studio execs for so long um, you know about he was just sick and tired of compromising himself, I guess he wanted to write profound television dramas, so he was looking forward to the twilight zone in that in that capacity, but it didn 't work out that way, did it you know it wasn 't like he got a chance to relax.
4: I don't know if Rod could relax. I, I don't know if he had that in him. He, he, was, he was constantly working, constantly thinking, constantly on the move. He was just, I don't know if he ever relaxed other than when he got to, uh, you know, on his boat on Lake Cayuga, you know, and then in the summertime, you know, that was probably about it. But, but yeah, the Twilight Zone, well, from that perspective, he did get to relax to some extent because, yeah, he, the, the battles with the sponsors and the network executives pretty much was done. The Twilight Zone really did take him out of that realm. He didn't really have to fight with them anymore because, you know, a lot has been made about the about the Twilight Zone being able to address these issues through allegory, through science fiction, through fantasy, and kind of slip the issues past the sponsors. And I think that's that's somewhat true. That that is that is true. And Rod Stern himself said plenty of times that that's one of the reasons he did the Twilight Zone was to so he could get away with some of this stuff. But I think it also was just about the fact that. The network and the sponsors weren't going to take a half hour filmed science fiction series as seriously as they would take a 90 minute straight drama. In other words, Rod could do something like the monsters would do on Maple Street, which is as blatant a social commentary as you're ever going to get. And I don't think anybody could watch the show and not realize what Rod Serling is saying. I mean, it's not like it's subterfuge. I mean, he, he, he said what he wanted to say in that show. But he didn't get into any trouble with uh, with that show because it's like, you know, leave Rod alone. He's in his little sandbox. Nobody cares about that half hour science fiction show. It's for kids. You know, it's not a big deal. It's not a 10 o'clock at night. It's, you know, nobody cares. You know? And they kind of gave him, they gave him leeway because they just didn't give the amount of respect to science fiction, I think. That they would have given, they would—they weren't watching it as closely as they would watch a Playhouse 90 and say, "Hey, Rod, you got to change that line, that line, that line, because it's gonna—you know—it's gonna bother the sponsors. South of the Mason-Dixon line, this is—you know—this is—you know—robots and aliens and spaceships, and it's—you know—it's just not going to be taken as seriously as as that kind of stuff.
3: By design, I guess. Then he he chose—he chose that genre by design. Although, okay. He did break format and we'll discuss that as well over five seasons what 150 plus episodes and again presenting Serling Fest 2022 being held this August in Binghamton New York Uh, how do we get more information tickets and so forth
4: thank you yeah the website is SerlingFest2022.com and there you can uh, find the link to buy tickets and you'll also find the schedule of the exact events that are going on and, and the locations and everything else so it's wwwserlingfest 20222022com and you'll get, uh, get everything there.
3: How did the uh, the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation uh, come about?
4: Well, it started long before I became involved with it. It started in 1985, so about 10 years after Rod died. And it was started primarily by by Rod Serling's really, his first mentor, Helen Foley, a teacher of his in, at Binghamton High School, who taught him public speaking and Helen Foley was, um, you know, they were very, they were good friends. They, you know, she was his teacher, but they became, they were friends and they stayed friends for the rest of Rod's life even after he left, left high school. And she was a fan. you know, she was an unabashed fan. She took a lot of pride in in Rod's career and his Rod's success and she loved the guy and and he loved her. And so um, in 1985, she and a bunch of other local Binghamton, People who knew Rod personally said, "We want to do something that can ensure that this man's work is not forgotten." And they started the foundation. It was it was originally the Rod Sterling uh, Memorial or the Rod Sterling Committee, the Rod Sterling Memorial Committee, and then it became the Rod Sterling Memorial Foundation. And um, it's a five hundred one c three charity. It's completely uh, it's a it's a complete uh, completely charity. It's it's none of us get paid for anything we do for the foundation. It is a, a labor of love for all of us and. Um, I'm really happy to do it. And Sterling Fest is our big event, uh, big yearly uh, fundraising event.
3: How many uh, How many people are drawn to the uh, uh, Sterling Fest typically?
4: Generally, I mean, we've had a couple hundred. It's It's not a huge event. Um, uh, if there's two to three hundred, that would probably be about right. I certainly hope we'll get more than that this year, but but that's about where it's been. So the I think the one one of the nice things I tell people about Sterling Fest is that it's not you know Comic-Con you're not going to come and be swamped by a uh, 15,000 people and have to wait on lines and not be able to meet people and stuff you come to Sterling Fest you're going to be able to sit and talk to Anne Serling. you're going to be able to sit and talk to Mark, Mark zickory you're going to be able to sit and talk to me and Mark DeWoodziak and Tony Alvarella and all, all these people who have who are who have intimate knowledge of Rod Sterling's work and 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 you're going to see some you're going to see things that you would not see otherwise we screen very rare uh, Rod appearances interviews that you would never have seen before uh, we're going to end the Saturday night. We're going to end with a screening of Seven Days in May, a uh, feature film that Rod wrote. So, uh, so you get to see it on the big screen. So it's just, um, it's a really, really great gathering of, of aficionados of, of Rod Serling.
3: So we were talking about his battles in the early days on Craft uh, uh, Theater and Playhouse 90 and, and the Steel Hour with uh, sponsors and ad agencies and the studio execs and the censors, and he would... F- he would usually lose. I mean, he would fight the good fight, you know, I want that line in there. I want the show told this way and he'd lose. And then he'd go and I don't know, kind of gripe to the media about it. Um, And I guess, hence the title, the angry young man of, of Hollywood, did that end up costing him work? I mean, did he have that hard to work with label? Incredibly
4: not really. No, no, that is an incredible um, kind of almost a, Contradiction, you would think that he uh, that he didn't get that label. He got the nickname t- "Television's Angry t- Television's Angry Young Man," but but he really did not have the uh, reputation because for a couple of reasons. One is that people love to work with Rod Serling. Uh, you know, I you know, in my research for the, my book, I spent four years going through all of Rod Serling's correspondence, letters he wrote, letters he received, uh, all of this stuff interviews with everybody. And it's impossible to find somebody that didn't get along with Rod Sterling. He was a a very personable guy. When you were working with him, he had tremendous respect for the people he worked with. So the producers, the other writers that he worked with, uh, the directors, um, he had tremendous respect for these people. And so they had a, a, a real fondness for Rod Sterling and they enjoyed working with him. And I think that even the sponsors... Um, you talk about say the, the people who ran the ad agencies, you know, it's people who would actually come and watch a rehearsal of a show. Well, Rod would, Rod would bash the interference, but he would never bash them personally. He would, they were, they were still friends with, you know, he was friends with these guys and he understood that they had a job to do. And he would say, listen, your job is to push a product. I get that. I understand that my job is to tell a story. So let's work on this. So we, so we both get to do our jobs here, you know? And he was, you know, so he was very um, he was just so personable that he never really yeah, had that, that. And it certainly didn't cost him work. You know, one thing Rod Serling did was, which was smart and which was, I guess just kind of made sense is that he didn't really start making us think about some of these things until after he had a name for himself, you know, back in, in his early days from 1950 to 1954 or so, You you don't find Rod Sterling, you know, bemoaning the sponsor interference much on, on, you know, at all, much, if not, if if at all. But after he hit with Patterns, Patterns was the was the show that made him an overnight success. And that's literal. That's night hyperbole. Overnight, overnight. It showed one night the next morning. He was a star. He was he was the most in demand writer in television. And from that point forward, he said, you know what? There are some things I want to use this medium for and things I want to say, and I'm not going to shut up anymore. I'm going to I'm going to say what I have on my mind and let the chips fall where they
3: may. Tell us about Patterns, that uh, that breakthrough series for him.
4: Patterns was a one hour script that Rod wrote for Craft Theater, and it was the story of. It's that it wasn't a controversial show, really. It was a story of a man from Cincinnati, which uh, and Rod Serling worked in Cincinnati, so this is somewhat autobiographical. It was a man from Cincinnati who gets uh, a job with a big firm in New York City. So he's going from kind of the small pond to the big pond, and and when he gets the job in New York City, he uh, eventually realizes that he's really there to take the place of the current vice president, who was an older man, unwell. And is not performing up to you know his ex- expectations, and it's his, and he has to take this guy's job. And it's about the the moral dilemma that this guy ha- has been put into because he likes this guy, he, he 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 respects the guy, he has affection for this guy, and he doesn't want to, He doesn't want to push this guy out, but at the same time, he does want the job. He wants the job. He wants to move up the corporate ladder. His wife wants him to move up the corporate ladder, and so it's about the you know that moral dilemma that he has in in, uh, in dealing with a boss who is a, uh, a slave driver, you know, and, um, and, and the, the tension between the Fred Staples is the character's name between Fred Staples and Walter Ramsey, the boss of the company is just so well, writ- so well-written the dialogue between those two characters is so powerful and so cutting that um, when this show aired and, you know, people would think it's hyperbole now they think I'm exaggerating or something, but After the show aired, the next morning, the the New York Times ran a review of this show and said it was the best thing they'd ever seen on television in terms of writing, acting, production, direction. It was the high point of the medium to that point, period. Uh, So it got unbelievably rave reviews and it. Like I said, Rod Sterling's, uh, you know, one of his famous lines is that the moment that that show went off the air, my phone started ringing and it hasn't stopped since. And, and he said, like, 20 years later, you know, it hasn't stopped since because that was it. I mean, as soon as that show hit, it was it. And the thing about TV back then, you know, this was live. You know, this was a live performance. So one of the amazing things about Patterns is just the fact that it went off without a hitch. I mean, it was just such a perfect show. It was live. And there's not a single flubbed line, not a, not a single flubbed word. I mean, the direction is perfect. There's no boom mic hanging in the frame somewhere. There's nobody tripping on something. It was just a perfect performance all the way around. And when, you know, with live television back in those, those days, it was like the opening of a Broadway show. And, you know, just like a Broadway show can open, get terrible reviews, and be gone the next day or within a week, a, te- a great, well reviewed television show can set somebody up for a long time. And that's what this did for Rod Serling. It gave him those kind of reviews where now he was on top of the world and he kind of took, took it from there.
3: A lot of people used television as a springboard uh, to get into film. I mean, he did write, obviously he wrote some great film uh, scripts, but he, he stayed in television. Why, why didn't he take that leap? Did he love the medium so much?
4: I think that was definitely part of it. Um, He was asked that question, you know, several, several times. And Part of it was that, yeah, he did have an affection for television. It was where he grew up, so to speak, as a writer. You know, it's, it what, you know, it was what he knew, and he was comfortable there. And not only was he comfortable there, but he believed in the power of television. He believed that a medium like this that can enter everybody's living room, and especially in those days, we're talking about when there was three networks or four, maybe. Uh, and, you know, so you had... 60 million people watching one show. He believed that if a medium had that much power to reach that many people at any given time, then it better be better than what it's been. It better it better educate people. And you know, he wanted to entertain people always. He always believed in entertaining people. That was first and foremost. But again, he believed that if you had this power, you know, to use a Spider-Man line, with great power comes great responsibility. You know, he had a responsibility. He feel he felt that television had a responsibility. So so he stayed with it with the idea that I'm going to do everything I can to try to get this medium to grow up. And 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 he did. He, he helped it to grow up tremendously.
3: Enjoying uh, this conversation immensely with Nicholas Parisi and uh, presenting Serlingfest Fest 2022 in Binghamton, New York, coming up uh, next month in August. And uh, once again, the website for more information?
4: It's SerlingFest2022.com.
3: All right. Will you be, are you licensed to air like episodes uh, from the, from the uh, series? Or
4: We have been in the past, uh, but this year, actually, we're uh, not going to be airing any episodes. Uh, we are, as I mentioned, going to be screening seven days in May on Saturday, and we're going to be airing some rarer stuff outside of the Twilight Zone this year.
3: All right. Um, did, did Serling ever direct? No, he never
4: did. And sometimes you'll see online, the producer, director, right? so, no, he, he never directed any. He said, I couldn't direct traffic. You know, that
3: was, that was, Interesting. I mean, yeah. because obviously he was a wordsmith and he loved, he loved to write, to take that leap of faith and to hand that over to somebody else, to a director and not, I don't know, he just seemed so, when he's on camera, he seems so earnest. Uh, I just find that hard to believe that, you know, he would, he would let that go. That's his baby. <laughs>
4: Yeah, well, well, with the Twilight Zone, I think that he felt that he didn't let it go because he really was so involved with everything. He was so involved with the production, with the casting, with the score, the music, with the editing, everything. He didn't get behind the camera and direct, but he was involved with everything else you could possibly have. And And I think he just again, I think he knew his limitations and he knew, you know, he was he was involved with hiring the directors. He would hire the right person and he would have some control over you know the the way it came out from all these other aspects but he never had the desire to actually direct
3: when he was writing uh at playhouse 90 did he work with patty chayefsky
4: he knew patty Ch- chayefsky very well um they never worked together no but I, but they were writing certainly right at the same time for the same shows and yeah yeah they uh they knew each other very well
3: uh, that's my favorite movie network of course, Patty uh, And that came out, I guess, like the year after Serling died in 70, yeah. came out in 76. I'm just, yeah. I was just trying to imagine if those two had ever gotten together and worked together. I mean, no. on the road, they were magnificent, but can you imagine it's like Tesla and Edison?
4: Yeah, well, the, I think the closest you would get actually is Rod did work with Reginald Rose on, on, a, uh, on a script once. Rod um, never worked with another writer. He was always, always by himself. But one one time he uh, worked with Reginald Rose on a script called The Challenge. It was a, a pilot for a series. Well, the series really was called The Challenge. And, uh, he and Reginald Rose got together and brainstormed a bunch of ideas for it and they wrote the pilot script together. Rod ended up later saying that Reginald Rose probably wrote ninety eight percent of it but that may have been a little bit of Rod's rod's self deprecating and not wanting to take credit for it but but um that that show is available you can kind of find it's it was never it was never aired it, it was produced it was never aired and the show was not picked up obviously but that's the one time where he did really uh, collaborate with another writer and it just happened to be you know, retro bros, which is, I don't know, maybe a half a step below that to Patty Maybe if that
3: it never aired, I, I'm wondering if like Serling aficionados, Serling fans, did they like look for those unreleased gems the way like a Beatle fan looks for the, those rare unreleased tracks?
4: Well, I certainly did. Yeah. Yeah. That was, again, that was part of the, that was part of what spurred the book was that I started looking for all of these things. I wanted to know what exists, you know, so much of Rod Serling's work and not just Rod Serling's work, but early television is gone. I mean, it's lost. The the shows that aired live, many of them were not captured. They were not filmed. They were not captured on kinescope. And if they were captured on Kinescope, they were thrown away, you know, so a lot of them are gone. So so one of the things that really spurred my book was a, a desire to catalog, all right, what is it, what exists, what doesn't exist, what is at some archive somewhere, what is at some music, you know, some television museum somewhere, and what can I actually get like on the black market, you know, for lack of a better term, you know? So yeah, so I, I searched out for all of those things and got my hands on anything, anything that exists. Yeah. <laughs>
3: Uh, We talked about whether, you know, he directed. Um, I want to talk about acting because he he once said every writer is a frustrated actor who rehearses his lines in the hidden audition of his skull or something like that. (laughs) Close. Something like that. Was he a frustrated actor? I don't think he
4: was a frustrated actor. No, I think, again, I, I think that was another example of he knew his limitations. I think he would have loved to have been an actor. And he was uh, he was a ham. I mean, he, he was a ham. He liked to perform. And he did perform when he was a kid. I mean, he performed. I have clippings of Rod Sterling performing at the local Jewish center when he was six years old. You know, I mean, he performed at, in plays from the time he was six years old through high school. And after high school, he performed on radio shows. He acted, you know, he did radio acting. He acted in a lot of the shows that he wrote. But he never um again, he was five foot five, and that at that time you know Tom Cruise probably wouldn't have made it as a leading man. he had to be had to have some height to you, had to have some F to you, so he knew he wasn't going to be a leading man, um, but he did like to be on camera he really did no matter what he said he, he liked to be on camera and uh, so he did some some acting uh, after the Twilight Zone other than just the uh, introductions that he would do on the Twilight Zone.
3: Right, is that why he inserted himself as the narrator on camera? Was that his decision, or did, did he want to do that?
4: Uh, he wanted to do it. Yes, um, it was a kind of a, a kind of a, um, long story. But the 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 first season of Twilight Zone, he's not on camera. He's on, he's just he's off camera. He's he does the introductions off camera, and the second season, they wanted to add an on camera narrator. They thought it might you know you know spread, you know uh, juice things up a little bit, maybe get the the, the ratings up a little bit. So they were going to go get Orson Welles. And the long story short is Rod said, I'll do it. I'll do it. And, and they let Rod do it. <laughs> and then, and again, it was his baby. So, so he really did. If he said he was going to do it, they were going to let him do it. And, you know, the rest is history. He was, he was, who could, who could be better at, at introducing Twilight Zone episodes? You know, nobody.
3: <laughs> All right. Back to more of our conversation. Nicholas Parisi talking about Rod Serling, his life, his work, his imagination, the Twilight Zone. Stay with us. Happy birthday to you. Hey, where's mom going? She hasn't even opened her
1: presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means there's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So can we cut the cake now? You betcha.
2: No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca.
3: Nicholas Parisi is here with us for the full two hours. And we're talking about Rod Serling, of course, and the Twilight Zone and uh, Serling Fest 2022 coming your way in Binghamton, New York in August. uh, Serlingfest.com? Serlingfest2022.com. SerlingFest2022.com. 2022 uh, dot com. All right. Um, there's a uh, well. You mentioned it, Orson Welles. Uh, I I wasn't sure if that was an apocryphal story or not. That Orson Welles was originally slated to be the narrator. So he they they gave it some consideration.
4: Yes, I think the the misconception on the on the Orson Welles things is, is what you said is that he was never the original choice for narrator. Some there's been some. Uh, discrepancies about that—that that they originally wanted Orson Welles. What they, what they originally, they originally—if you watch, you know, on the DVD collections, the Blu-ray collections, there is a a dem, kind of a demo version of the pilot episode. Where is everybody? That has uh, a different announcer doing the doing the the introduction and the, the twilight zone theme, you know, the, the beginning introduction, um, that was Jason, Van, uh, I forget the guy's name, Van Voorhees. I forget, I forget his full name, but, but so there was a different, uh, announcer for that. And then Rod took over from, from him, And it was just it was just after the first season was done that they decided, you know, maybe we should have somebody on camera. And the first name they thought of was Orson Welles. And they said, and Rod, actually, I had, you know, Rod was scheduled to go to fly to London to meet meet with Orson Welles. And I never was able to to determine if he actually did follow through with that. Um, But shortly afterward, uh, he got the job. You know, so I think I think, like I said, I think he kind of objected to a certain extent. Probably, and he probably had a good standing to object because Orson Welles would have wanted too much money. I mean, and and by too much money, I mean any money <laughs> because because they were already trying to cut the budget in every way they possibly could. They couldn't afford to go hire Orson Welles to, to be the narrator. So Rod was Rod came at the right price.
3: <laughs> so, <laughs> right. He, so he got a job. Well, we'll talk about the penny pinching in a moment, but if that if that meeting had taken place i don't know i'm imagining you know the savoy hotel or something boy would i like to have been a fly on the wall for that conversation the No meeting, doubt. the meeting of those two minds i'm i'm I'm, wonder, I'm i'm sure rod serling must have been listening to the mercury theater back in 38 with the war of the worlds that night did he ever mention i,
4: I don't think he ever mentioned it but yeah i can't imagine he what you know he wasn't yeah you know.
3: so the um the budgeting for the twilight zone um Penny pinching, I guess to say the least. They had to salvage props from from elsewhere. Tell me about that.
4: Well, they yeah they reused props uh, from themselves. I mean, so there yeah you'll see certain things throughout the series reused in various episodes. Uh, certain props they would get certain props from the uh, from the MGM lot. You know there there would be uh, you know there would be you know they use the spaceship from uh, from uh, Forbidden Planet. You know I mean they would do that when they had to. And again, I think that some, I think one of the you know one of the amazing things about the twilight zone is that you know, nobody really cares about that. Nobody nobody cares that the the aliens looked looked crummy. You know, nobody cares that the the spaceship you saw the wires on it. You know, it just it was they, they. I think watching the twilight zone, you know that that just wasn't the focus. You know that 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 wasn't what was important. You know, it was nice. I mean, every now and then, listen, twilight zone did some really. Uh, Cutting edge stuff for the time for 1959 1960. When you're talking about things like Eye of the Beholder, uh, you know the direction of Eye of the Beholder, where you have to go through a half an hour without seeing anyone's face, you know, and and the shadow, the way they use shadows, and I mean the directing job by Douglas Hayes in that episode is, is just tremendous. I think it was Douglas Hayes. I hope I get that right. I hope I get that right. But but um, things like that, or the Howling Man, another one I think of, where it's just they made the most of these, um, you know, unusual sets. You know, you would see things like like an episode like *The Obsolete Man*, where they have a doorway that's about twenty-five feet tall, and Burgess Merritt goes through this doorway that's twenty-five feet tall, and he goes to a a, a, a table that's like twenty-five feet long, to a to a, a podium that's that Fritz Weaver standing behind that's about twenty-five feet tall. I mean, it was just it was this. They they use the settings, they use the the those kind of things to such great effect that. You know, they didn't need, a, you know, a million dollar budget for special effects. You know, they got they got it done.
3: Uh, so five five seasons. Uh, yes. It was always in black and white, right? They never. Oh, yes. Yeah. Was there ever a, a, a consideration? I mean, for for shooting in color? Not
4: during those five seasons. No. Um, after the show ended, Rod you know, Rod wanted The Twilight Zone to continue. As Again, as much as he said he was burnt out and he was tired of it and everything else, I believe he if somebody had come to him and said, Yeah, we want to do another season of the show, he would have done it. And I do have some some correspondence from him in the sixties saying, Hey, what about this? What about an hour long Twilight Zone Show in color? You know, why can't we do this? And he, he wanted to bring it back and he would have if he had brought it back, it would have been in color. It would have been a to Night Gallery.
3: They didn't wasn't it, or was it originally a thirty and it moved to an hour, or was it an hour and they moved it to a thirty?
4: No, it was originally a thirty. It was a thirty for three seasons. And then it came back mid-season, the next season, at an hour length. They did 18 one-hour episodes, and then it came back for a full season of half-hour shows for a fifth season.
3: So was the feeling then that the hour-long just didn't work? Pretty much, yeah. Pretty much, yeah. The
4: hour-long uh, are pretty universally seen as, as not as good as the half-hour shows. And I think Rod, Rod, you know, Rod wanted the show to be an hour-long to begin with. He re- it was originally proposed as an hour-long show. And it took some doing to get him to agree to make it a half an hour. And so he never quite got that idea out of his head. So when they proposed to do it an hour in the fourth season, he was all for it. It wasn't like it was against his will. He wanted to do it as an hour. And it just didn't quite go the way he wanted it to go. And so he, did not, he, wasn't, uh, he didn't object when they said, let's go back to a half hour. He knew that that was, that was a better format for the show.
3: And how were the ratings like from, from the season one uh, right through to the end?
4: They were never great, but they were never terrible. They were always just kind of borderline and enough to get the show re- renewed. Occasionally it was, it you know, you had some episodes that were very highly rated had some, some good promotion uh, behind certain episodes and everything. So, so occasionally the ratings would spike, but, but they were never great, but they were good enough to renew. And it also had the prestige and you know, it had Rod Serling and, and he really was the biggest name as far as writers go in television at the time. So so they were willing to go with the show. When it was decent ratings and had some prestige to it, they were willing to, to keep it going.
3: The theme song. We have to talk about the theme song. And those, you know, do-do-do-do, you, you need three notes. It's worldwide. It's one of the great brands, dare I say, in in the history of marketing, you know, like right up there with Coca-Cola or, or I don't know, CNN, Once Upon a Time. It's become such uh, a touchstone, but it didn't. They never used that in the first season, did they? Did that come in later? That, that didn't come in until the fourth season, actually. Fourth um, season.
4: Well, well, the fourth season. Yeah, you know, I, I should I should check myself because I'm I'm thinking the music and the and the actual visual, the visual of the door and the eyeball and the window and everything that was that was fourth season. That came uh, in the fourth season, and that was with the doo 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 theme song but the duty-do the may have actually also been in the third season they just changed the visuals so I think it was the third season actually but but the original the first two seasons certainly the first season was the much more uh, dramatic so so to speak um, and ethereal much more ethereal music with there is a fifth dimension beyond that, which is known to man. And you kind of see the gauzy you know, filter going across the screen dimension is dimension as vast as space in this time. Is as infinity. So that was the original. Yeah. But the doo-doo doo-doo is the one that's stuck in everybody's brain and stuck in the popular culture forever. You just say those, like you said, four notes and you know exactly what you're talking about.
3: Do we know that the origin of that song who wrote it and how it came out, how it, came uh,
4: out? it was, well, it was, um, uh bernard herman i believe was uh, mary's mary's constant and bernard herman were the two main ones who wrote the two themes for the twilight Zone. and i believe that one was bernard herman and um i don't know the story behind how he actually came up with that uh but uh it was a stroke of genius apparently because yeah i mean it's so it's just immediately recognizable
3: yeah what i want to know is is the estate still receiving uh royalties for that
4: for the song for the yeah. for the theme. Yeah. That I don't know. I mean, I'm, certain, I'm sure it was, you know, a work for hire, as they say, you know. So so he likely didn't uh, get full ownership of the of the music. I'm sure about that. But um, but uh, hopefully he got a little something. You know, I'm hoping he got, got a little something out of it.
3: All right. We are uh, approaching the top of the hour, and we'll get ready, settle in for hour two. Nicholas Parisi, my guest. We're talking about the life and work and imagination of Rod Serling. Don't forget... Serlingfest 2022 coming to Binghamton, New York in August. Serlingfest2022.com, the website. All right, hold tight. We'll be back with more right after these.
0: Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett
3: on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Carlos Cagina is our technical producer, Ryan White. ...is our live stream producer... ...please check out the YouTube and Rumble channels... ...Strange Planet... ...Nicholas Parisi is uh, with us... ...and uh, we are celebrating... ...the uh, the legacy... ...of Rod Serling... ...and Nicholas serves on the board of directors... ...for the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation... ...a charitable organization... ...dedicated to preserving and promoting... ...Rod's legacy... ...he's a former staff writer... ...editor for Good Times Magazine in Long Island... ...and uh, again the author of Rod Serling, His Life, Work, and Imagination with a Forward by Rod's daughter, Anne Serling. So, um, how did you get to meet Anne?
4: I first met Anne when she was uh, she was doing a reading for her book, uh, her book uh, As I Knew Him, My Dad, Rod Serling. And uh, she was doing an appearance for that, and I was working on my book at the time, and I had written an outline of my book, and a, a pretty detailed outline of my book, and I brought it to her. I met her and her husband and I, I brought it to her and I said, hey, this is what I'm working on. And I'd love to get your opinion on it. And I gave it to her. And, uh, and she called me the next day and said, this is wonderful. This is, this is tremendous. I hope, you, I hope you do this. Please do this. Please finish this. Um, it's exactly what's needed. Because, because again, I, I, the one thing about my book is that it's, it's the first book that covers Rod Strong's entire career from show number one to show number two end you know and and it covers them in a way that other books have not covered them in a show by show series by series basis so i i think she was very um you know intrigued by the idea that she would finally that there would finally be a record you know an official record of his his rod sterling's body of work bam that's it you know this is it so uh, she encouraged me and it was she was instrumental in just i mean when you get uh the endorsement of the man's daughter, you're going to, you're going to do what she says, you know? So I, so I went and finished the, finished the book, you know? So, and she was kind enough to offer to write the the forward for me. So, and we've been, we've been friends ever since. And that's, uh, you know, and, and I always have to give credit to her book because her book, as I knew him, my dad, Rod Serling is just a beautiful memoir. It's the book that if you, feel like there's any part of Rod Sterling that you don't know about, get her book, you know, get her book instead of mine, you know, and and read that because you'll get the, you'll get a picture of the man that you had not had before of of the, of the father, the, the, the human being, uh, you know, in in her book, it's really a tremendous piece of work.
3: Well, I've not read it, but um, was he like an attentive dad? Because it seemed to be so wrapped up in his work. I I imagine him as just like a a, a workaholic. Was he, an attentive Uh, dad
4: yeah i i think well i think he was cloned at some point he was cloned because there had to be two or three rod serlings uh, running around at some at some point because i don't know otherwise know how he was able to accomplish all the things that he did but seriously he um the amazing thing about ann's recollections and ann's book is the fact that yes he was he wasn't necessarily um let's put it this way she says that she and her sister jody never felt like they were without dad they always felt that he was there and he was and he was approachable you know he had his his office you know on the grounds He had his office next to the pool you know in, in the, at the house and when they would come to new york when they would come to uh to ithaca and they had their lake house you know he would be working on the boat he'd, be, he'd have his he, he dictated so he'd be dictating on the boat but he was there you know so he was they always felt that he was he was Uh, approachable and and accessible, so no matter how much work he was doing. And and it was a tremendous amount of work that he did. So that is the one amazing thing that you'll get from our book, is how how was he able to do this? I'm not not real sure.
3: (laughs) So uh, if I'm remembering correctly, he wrote 92 out of the 156 episodes over five seasons. I mean, there's prolific, and then there's like Rod Serling. How did he work? (laughs) How did he... Do we? Do you have a sense of how he wrote uh, and his working habits?
4: Yeah. Well. Well, the first thing, like I said, is that un- very unusual for a writer. He dictated all of his scripts. He dictated everything. He started out like everybody does. Started out by typing in the you know, 1950 to say 1954. About he would type just like any you know, old two, two fingers Hunt and peck. You know. But but right around 1955, he started to dictate his scripts because he felt that. His mind was working too fast for his fingers, and he couldn't type fast enough. And he he wanted to just get it out, so he started to dictate. And his his, his process was he would dictate the script, um, pretty much straight through, uh, give it to his secretary to type up, then she would give him back the printed copy. And then he would go through it and line edit it. He would go back and you know he go and make notes, and then he would and then he would dictate the the edits so he'd dictate marge you know there's a uh, you know Secretary's name is marge page page three here let's take it from here and he would dictate the uh you know the, the changes you know and he'd go through it and then she'd give me the next graph and that would usually probably be it so and he would he would work generally you know morning until lunchtime take that long lunch break and then work a couple hours after lunch and that was pretty much it or during twilight zone days he would be made work in the morning then go to the studio and he'd be at the studio you know for a you know, till, till nighttime and then come home, you know, come home afterward, you know, so he, he would put the, put the twilights to bed every day, you know, but, um, but yeah, so he, he was, uh, he worked and worked and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. It's just, it's amazing the amount of thing, the amount of stuff that he wrote in,
3: in a short lifetime. How did he write dialogue so well? I mean, I, I've, I, I've, I've, I met uh, Richard Matheson Jr. Uh, I interviewed him and, and um, his dad, you know, great writer as well one of the core four, as we'll discuss, but, but, yeah. and he talked about, you know, to be a great writer of dialogue, you have to be a great listener. Yeah. How did, how did Rod master
4: writing dialogue? I, I think that that is the, the essence right there. You have to be a listener. And, and, and Rod Serling was, you know, I mentioned before that uh, he was a very personable guy and, and he got along with pretty much everybody and he had a lot of friends I think one of the things that endeared Rod Serling to people was that he actually, he was interested in people. He really, if you talk, I mean, I, I, I was five years old when the man died. So I never met Rod Serling. I wish I could have met Rod Serling. I feel like I met Rod Serling sometimes. But, but if you listen to the people who knew Rod Serling or or, ta- or took his classes because he taught for a long time or just interacted with him, they would say that, you know, when, when you talked to Rod Serling, he looked you in the eye and he listened to what you said. And, and how amazing that, you know, he was never the Hollywood you know, the Hollywood uh, personality, uh, oh yeah, looking at his watch and saying, hey, uh, nice to meet you, I got to get out of here. If you want something to talk to Rod Strong about, he would sit there and listen to you. So, so yes, he listened to the way people spoke and he translated that in, into his work. And he had a great ear for dialogue. It was certainly his, his biggest strength as a writer.
3: Right. Would he also script out the, the stage direction or the...
4: Often, yeah, often he would, yes. Um, in uh, The Twilight Zone, certainly. He would he would he would script out the camera angles and things like that close up for you know medium shot that kind of stuff he would even script that out Um, and pretty much yeah pretty much the same throughout his throughout his career I don't think he ever uh, really strayed away from that I mean he might have uh, cut down on it a little bit later in his career but not but not much he he yeah he would include that stuff
3: was he always a chain smoker.
4: Yeah, I think I think probably from the time he joined the army. Yeah, I don't know if he smoked before that. He probably did, but I think the army was where it really kicked in, and who knows how much how much it smoked. It was just yeah, it was constant, constant.
3: So we mentioned uh, Richard Matheson. So there was what you call the, the 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 core four group of writers: Serling, who wrote the bulk ninety two out of one hundred and fifty six episode. We mentioned Richard Matheson. Um, who were who the other in the core four?
4: Charles Beaumont would be the next one for sure, and uh, and George Clayton
3: Johnson is the one that
4: I would I would conclude in that, that for. George Clayton Johnson wrote Kick the Can, A Game of Pool, um, uh, Nothing in the Dark with Robert Redford. Uh, he wrote some real classic episodes, George Clayton Johnson. I think technically, I think Earl Hamner Jr. wrote more episodes than George Clayton Johnson, but... George Clayton Johnson wrote better episodes by, by far, not to, not to, uh, you know, bag on, on Earl Hamner, but, um, but he was not quite the right writer for the Twilight Zone. His, his episodes are pretty forgettable. Um, But those four, those were the four. And and I wish I knew the numbers on what each of them wrote, but, um, but between Rod and those three writers, so in those four, I believe they wrote, I think it was like 130 out of the 156. So I think there were only like 26 episodes written by other people than most than those four writers
3: so um as a um as an expert on on rod serling if you didn't know who wrote what episode and you you didn't look at the end credits would you be able to tell oh that's a that's a charles beaumont or that's a george clayton johnson or no that's a serling Uh, yes
4: yeah i i certainly tell if if i if i if i'm trying to think about well i'll tell you one i actually did get fooled by one not How long ago would it be? Probably about uh, maybe 15 years ago. I was watching, and one of my favorite episodes, probably top 20, is an episode called, it's it's an underrated episode called The Trouble with Templeton. It's an episode about uh, an aging actor who um, wants to go back in time to when he was younger and uh, his glory days on the stage. And um, he goes back in time and his friends realize that he's come back in time, including his girlfriend, and they push him out. They say, you don't belong here. You need to go back to your own time. And the girl, and there's a scene in this episode that is just so beautiful, where the woman, there's his girlfriend has to play this part. She has to play the act. She has to act like she doesn't want him there because she knows it's better for him to be in the present. She she shouldn't be in the past. And she pushes him out. And the moment he leaves, you see the emotion just come over her face. Like what did I, I I had to do something I didn't want to do. And when I watched that episode, like 15 years ago, I I thought it was Sterling. I thought for sure it was Sterling. And it turned out it was a man named uh, E. Jack Newman. It was the only episode he ever wrote for the show. Um, And, and I was shocked when I said, Oh my God, I can't believe that wasn't a Sterling, but but one thing you will find, I think, is that Eject Newman in that episode, and there were a couple of times with George Clayton Johnson where I I think that George Clayton Johnson was emulating Rod Serling to to a certain extent. So I think that in his episodes there's are sometimes where I feel like it's an extension of Rod Serling. You know, he, he kind of emulated him a little bit. But but Beaumont and Matheson, they have very very distinctive styles. You know, they they were they stood out like a sore thumb.
3: And and who decided on the the core four? Was it the producers? Was it did Serling have input? It
4: was mainly Serling uh, and Chuck Beaumont. Chuck Beaumont was the was the was the uh, I'm sorry, not Chuck Beaumont. I'm sorry, Buck Houghton. Buck Houghton was the producer for the tw- for the first three seasons of the Twilight Zone. And um, Serling and Buck Houghton were a great team. They they really worked well together, and they had a real cl- they had a real similar vision for the for the show. And so Rod met beaumont and matheson right off the bat when the when he screened the pilot and they were recommended to him by ray bradbury ray bradbury recommended these guys along with george clayton johnson and so they were at the screening of the pilot and they kind of you know they met sterling and and rod invited them to submit their scripts and i think it was just serendipity it was just what an amazing bolt of luck because they were so perfect they were just perfect for the show and you know, and Rod just accepted their scripts, never edited them, never never changed a word. I mean, he just he just took almost took them exactly as they were, to, and 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 aired them. I mean, that, that was how how well they worked together.
3: He didn't have he never rewrote. Did he have that power? Could he? Have? Oh yeah,
4: oh sure. Rod Sterling. I mean, he owned half the show. You know, he owned half the, half the half the half the interest in the films. And like I said, he was the executive producer. He was you know so he had the power to do pretty much any anything. And you know Charles Beaumont wrote a very famous article right at the beginning of the series for the magazine of fantasy and science fiction about how when he, first gave, when he gave his first script to Serling, it was a, a script called Perchance to Dream. Great, great episode about a man who thinks he's, a, he's uh, having a recurring nightmare and he has a heart condition and he thinks he's going to die in his sleep because he can't handle this nightmare. And he says, when I gave this script to Sterling, I figured, all right, it's going to be chopped up. It's going to be edited. You know, I understand this is television. And, and you know, even though Rod told me, Rod told me, you know, don't worry about the, w- the little old lady in Dubuque. She'll get it. She'll understand it. Don't worry about it. Just write for yourself, write it the way you want it to be. And Charles Beaumont said, I was, when it aired, I was amazed that not a word had been changed, not a line. He he was amazed. And and so that kind of thing endeared writers to Rod Serling because they knew this guy's going to respect my work. And, and if he was going to change something, he'd call me and say, hey, hey, Chuck, you know, you know, maybe we should work on this or something. He wasn't just going to take a pencil and, and, and change a line, you know. So, so, yeah, that was, you know, so most of the time, Beaumont and Matheson, their scripts were aired untouched.
3: True or false, uh, they accepted scripts from viewers
4: uh true and false uh at the very <laughs> beginning <laughs> at the very beginning rod had this brilliant idea that yeah we'll open up the we'll open up floodgates let let viewers send in their scripts send in their ideas and see what, see what we come at what comes in and he said you know they got like 500 scripts and like one of them was even remotely passed so he stopped that practice pretty much right away. Uh, so so none of those scripts ever aired and yeah he's got he he regretted that that decision pretty
3: quick. Yeah, give those to the outer limits. <laughs> yeah. Was there yeah. kind of a friendly competition with similar t- shows? Well, Outer Limits came after. That's why. So
4: oh. um so there wasn't. I do know that Sterling uh, enjoyed the Outer Limits. He enjoyed uh Joseph Storanko was the uh, the main writer and, and creator of of the Outer Limits and and he admired him. He thought he did good work and everything, um, but no. So there was never really a, a, any any competition or anything. Uh, One Step Beyond actually came before the Twilight Zone, so that so that had a little bit of an overlap with the Twilight Zone. But again, Twilight Zone was not. It was unique. It wasn't. It wasn't either of those shows. You know, it was it was its own thing, really.
3: Um, Charles Beaumont. He, uh, he was the one that died quite young, if I'm, I think it was, yes. he looked, he was only, I don't know, maybe 40, but he looked maybe twice that age. What happened to Charles Beaumont? He was stricken with a rare brain
4: disease, a brain disorder that is akin to Alzheimer's disease, akin to early onset Alzheimer's disease. And he was like 35, I believe, when he, when he contracted it. And yeah, he aged incredibly quick to the point where when he died, yeah, he looked like he was 70 years old. And when he first started experiencing the symptoms of it, people thought he was a drunk. You know, people thought that he was, you know, they thought he was a drinker because he appeared drunk. He was, he would slur his words. He couldn't quite think as clearly as he, as he used to. And several of the Twilight Zone scripts that were credited to Charles Beaumont later in the show were not written by Charles Beaumont. He would farm out his work because he just couldn't handle it anymore. He couldn't do it. He had ideas and maybe his short, it was based on his short story, but other people like um, John Tomerlin would, would write his scripts and uh, ghostwrite them. And they did it out of uh, friendship to him. They, never, they didn't get credit. They got paid, but they didn't get credit. And they did it because they knew what he was going through and they they wanted to help. And he had so many assigned writing assignments that he just couldn't handle them. So, yeah, it's a tragic, tragic story. Charles Beaumont was a brilliant writer. I mean, just a brilliant writer. He wrote novels. He wrote short stories. He wrote some of the greatest Twilight Zone episodes. The Howling Man is one of my favorites. Shadow Play is another of my favorites, both Charles Beaumont stories. And um, yeah, he died um, way, way, way too young.
3: I'm wondering what it was like on the set. Um, I, w- I was on YouTube recently and I saw Clint Howard, Ron Howard's brother, reminiscing about life on the, uh, the Andy Griffith show. Andy of Mayberry, and and uh, what a it was like such a family on screen and off screen, and they had all of these home movies, um, you know, behind the scenes. Was there anything comparable like that on the Twilight Zone set?
4: I don't think so, uh, and you could imagine why, because there weren't any con- continuing characters on the Twilight Zone, you know, so it wasn't like they had a chance to really bond uh, over the course of a season or whatever, but Rod Serling and Charles Beaumont certainly had that kind of friendship, and I, I keep saying Charles Beaumont, I mean Buck Houghton, Buck Houghton. <laughs> Charlie, Rod Serling and Buck Houghton had that kind of relationship, they were close friends and everything, and um, so yeah, so there was, you know, there was that, and, and with the other writers, yeah, I should say Charles Beaumont, because they were all very good friends, Charles Beaumont, Richard Madsen, and Serling, Slate, and George Clayton Johnson, they were all very close, uh, so that kind of thing. But there was uh, you know no continuing characters that could be that could kind of develop that kind of relationship.
3: Right. But did Anne Serling spend any time on the set?
4: I believe she talks about one time being on the set when she was very young and was born in. Uh, I'm going to probably date her. Uh, she. Um, well, let's put it this way. I think she was only like five years old when the show was on. So she was very young and um, she remembers being on the set and just remembering like a stairway that went to nowhere and thinking it was so weird, like where these stairs go and it just ends, you know, like that kind of thing. But um, but no, nothing, no, um, no real stories about like antics on the set or anything like that.
3: So we think of The Twilight Zone primarily as science fiction and fantasy, but occasionally um, the show would break format. There's an episode with Carol Burnett and Jesse White, who I remember is he's the original Maytag repairman. But that's not fair; <laughs> he did so much more than that. But as a kid, I remember uh, Jesse White as the Maytag repairman, and that was just an out-and-out comedy. Were there yeah, a- they yeah
4: they actually did several comedies, uh, and the the one of the big contradict or big you know ironies of Rod Serling's life, actually, or as a writer, anyway, his writing life is that Rod Serling loved comedy. And, you know, you think of Rod Sterling as being this dour, scary kind of guy and everything. Rod Sterling was a cut up. Rod Sterling loved comedy. He did impressions. He just he was a student of comedy. He, he would he would go watch, you know, Milton Berle or watch Red Skelton and, and just to to absorb it, you know. And, and so he he always wanted to write comedy. It never quite came through. Certainly not in The Twilight Zone. Um, the episode with Carol Burnett, I don't think that I don't particularly like that one, but it's it's a memorable one for her, I think. Uh, because she's in it, I mean And, um, you know, so there was that one There was, uh, you know, this And there's, there's a few other comedies that Yeah, mainly, I'm trying to think If anybody else wrote a comedy I think mainly was just Rod Like an episode like uh, Mr. Beavis is the kind of the companion piece To Cavender is coming Is the episode with Carol Burnett Mr. Beavis is about a guy Who has a guardian angel And he's kind of a, you know Weird kind of, uh, you know A goofball kind of guy And, and um, you know, he's always Getting into trouble at work Because he's just, you know He's a goofball, you know That kind of thing And, and that was that was a kind of lighthearted comedy and I, I like that one better than Cavender actually. And, you know, there's a couple others, a uh, showdown with Rance McGrew about a, a Western uh, guy who's a uh, guy acts in a Western and Jesse James comes back from the dead to tell him that he's given him a bad name because he's, they're portraying all these characters in the wrong way. And, you know, wants to wants to like rewrite the show, because you know, I thought there's, there's some laughs in that one, but the Rod's comedies never, you know, they never quite, quite made it. And as, at least as, as well as the other ones did obviously.
3: Well, they say that's the hardest thing to do, right, is comedy. Yeah. All right, another timeout awaits. Nicholas Parisi stays with us as we continue to uh, pay tribute to the legacy of Rod Serling. Don't go away.
1: Happy birthday to you. Hey, where's mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means... There's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing. And she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha.
2: No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See Specsavers.ca.
3: 156 episodes, 5 seasons. What was the shooting schedule like for The Twilight Zone?
4: They shot most episodes in three days. Yeah, I mean, if they got a rehearsal on the first day, maybe, and then, and then two days more. I mean, so it was, they, each episode was done three, pretty much three days.
3: Wow. Did they do a table read?
4: I don't know. I, I, I think they probably occasionally did, yeah. I think, pro- I think probably they did a table read more often than they did a full-blown rehearsal, I would think, just because of the time constraints, I would think. But yeah, I don't know that, that for sure.
3: And was it like a one camera shoot, and they would block it out, or was it uh, like three cameras? Or
4: um, there were multiple cameras, but I couldn't that that I couldn't tell you the, the, the specifics. That's something I did not get into the technical stuff about the production of the show.
3: So there's a we were talking about um, Cavender is calling, and uh, some of the other episodes that broke with the format. Um, there's another episode that sort of broke the format: the silence. Because there's no elements of supernatural uh, or or sci-fi at all. It's just a, I don't know, like a drama, almost like a psychological thriller even. So tell me about the silence for those who haven't seen it. You write about it a lot in your book.
4: Yeah. I was going to say, I love the silence and and I, and I, I did not intend this. This was not a a purposeful thing, but uh, when I was writing my book, I found that I wrote more about the silence than I did about any other Twilight Zone episode. And, And it was just because I found that I had more to say about it for whatever reason. And, the silence is, is is somewhat polarizing because, as you said, it doesn't have any science, uh, science fiction or supernatural aspect to it. And some people, you know, fellow Twilight Zone fans I know, don't like it for that reason. They think, you know, it could have been an episode of Alfred Hitchcock. And so why, you know, it's not it's not really a Twilight Zone. So. But I, I don't see it that way. I just see it as a great piece of TV. I don't really care. It, it was a Twilight Zone. It was aired on the Twilight Zone. So for me, it's a great piece of TV and it's a Twilight Zone. So it's a great Twilight Zone. I don't <laughs> you know, really care if it was, you know, in the realm of something else. But um, The Silence is, again, yeah. You know, for those who, who don't know, it's about uh, a bore. you know, set in a gentleman's club. You know, it's a gentleman's club, all wealthy to do people. And this one particular member of the club just can't shut up. I mean, he just he just comes to the club and just yaps and yaps and yaps. And there's one character that really just can't stand it anymore. The rest of the the rest of the people who are there kind of deal with it, and they you know they just you know they they deal with it. But this guy just can't handle it. And he finally bets the man five hundred, I believe it's five hundred thousand dollars, five hundred thousand dollars that he can't stay quiet for a year. And the bet is that. So to prove that he's, you know, going to be quiet for a year, they're going to put him in a in a booth where they can vis- where they can observe him at every moment of the day. He'll be there, he'll have all everything he needs, like food and water and TV, you know, where, you know, books and whatever else he needs, but he can't speak. And the episode builds the tension. You know, can this guy make it through the year? And as the as the time goes on, the man who made the bet with him is. First, he's pleading with him to start to cut the bet. I'll give you 15000 dollars if you get out now. Just we'll cut it now we'll we'll call it call it even. And, and the guy won't take the take the bait. And then he finally starts trying to bait the guy into saying something by you know spreading rumors about his wife. Hey, I saw your wife out, then you know, and seeing hoping that will do it, and that won't do it. And he finally makes it through the year without speaking, and he comes out to collect. And it turns out the guy who made the bet never had the money. He he was not, he was a member of the club but he had used up his fortune years and years ago. He was destitute. He had no money and he couldn't pay the pay the guy. And then that's, so that's the first twist. And this is one of a couple episodes that have kind of a double twist. The second twist is that the reason this guy was able to do the year without speaking is that he, before he went in there, he had a cert, he had surgery done and he has vocal cords cut. And he shows you the scar on his neck where he had the vocal cords cut. So it's, um, what I found, and the reason I wrote so much about it in the book, was that it's such a it's such a brilliant piece of writing. I think I've been using that word "brilliant" a lot, but it, it's it's kind of the best word for this. It's such an amazing piece of writing on Sterling's point in the fact that in 30 minutes, and not even 30 minutes because commercials, 24 minutes, mm-hmm. he takes your sympathies and they start with this guy who's making the bet because this other guy is really a bore. he's a pain in the butt, and and he's you know you you want this guy to shut up so. Your sympathies are with the guy who's making the bet. Yeah, get this guy to shut up. And then gradually your sympathies go to the other guy because this guy is now shit turning. He's starting to say he's starting to spread rumors and say things he shouldn't say. And and you know, so your sympathy sympathy is, is turning to him. And then when the guy comes out and this guy says, I don't have the money, well, you would think, all right, now he's clearly the villain here. He made this bet and didn't have the money. But he's sincere. He tells this guy, listen, I would have begged on the street. I would have begged on the street if I could have gotten you the money. I would have done anything. I wanted to get you out of there early. I couldn't do it. And I'm a fraud. And he tells the whole, the whole club, I'm a fraud. I don't deserve to be here. I'll, I'm going to resign my membership immediately. And he's repentant. I mean, you know, so he now all of a sudden, whoa, wait a second. Now your, your sympathies are going the other way. And then this guy says, I cheated. I cut my vocal cords. I would never have been able to spend a year being silent. I had to go to extreme means to, to be silent. So you're, you're sympathized with him. Oh, man, he, he cut his vocal cords? Wow, that's terrible. But at the same time, he cheated. He, he knew he couldn't do it. He cheated. So it's this moral dilemma of back and forth, back and forth, and neither of the characters are, you know, are to blame completely or to like completely. And Serling's the way he develops that episode is just amazing. I think that's you know, if you talk about you know writing writing classes, you want a writing class. Take that script and teach that to somebody because it starts with the the economy of language. That's the economy of language that Brad Sterling was able to do, particularly in that episode, is incredible. I mean, he starts with the very first scene in the show is the boar talking his talking his head off at these other people, and he's saying things like, "You know, I was talking to so and so today, and he gives you the name. I was talking to so and so, and he says he do this and do that." And you know that that name that he's dropped is a name drop. It's a, it's a fictional name. It's a mythical name. It doesn't mean anything to us watching the show, but you know it's a name drop. You know the other people saying, oh, God, he's you know, now he's telling us how he's friends with the mayor again. You know, that kind of thing. And it's in two lines. You get the total sense of this character. You get the total sense of the character and the dynamic between him and the rest of the, the rest of the club in like two minutes of dialogue. If that, two minutes of dialogue. And then same thing with the other character, where, you know, the character who makes the better sitting there with the other guy saying, do you believe this guy? He's going on and he's gritting his teeth and saying, and, and it's just, it's, it's an amazing bit of characterization in dialogue. You know, he's talking about how great Sterling was with dialogue. Well, this was dialogue that established characteristics in every word. Not, not a word is wasted in that an episode. And it's just, it's a clinic. It's a, it's a television writing clinic.
3: You mentioned the two twists there. There's actually there's a third one, which is not known necessarily to people watching the episode. But it's it has to do with this interesting backstory about the loudmouth boar. Uh, do you know what I'm referring to? Uh, his wife, are you talking about, or, or you uh, mean, no, uh, he gets in a bar fight.
4: Oh, oh, oh the back, oh the backstory. Yes, 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 yes. Well, that's actually the the guy who makes the bet. The um, oh, it's
3: the guy that makes the bet?
4: Yeah, yeah. Forget his okay. what is the actor's name, Franchot Tone. Franchot Tone, very good actor. Yeah, he got into a bar fight while the film while the episode was filming. And so if you watch it now and you know that watch particularly for the scenes where he is talking to the character in the, in the booth, in the silent booth, when he's talking to him, he has his face pressed up against the glass. So you can only see one side of his face because the other side of his face was mangled from getting, from getting beat up. And, uh, and you would never know that from watching it. But now, if you know, watch it, you'll, you'll notice they never show that left. I think the left side of his face from a certain point forward in the episode.
3: Oh, it's amazing. You know, while you're, you you were telling that story. I just, I watched, um, uh, I had this deluxe edition of Network, which I mentioned earlier because it's my favorite film and, and it's, um, you know, the, the little extras you get the bonus material. So you have Sidney Lumet doing the commentary you know, while the movie's playing and you learn all of these amazing, you know, backstories and, oh, well, in this scene, it was raining. So when Howard Beale is walking through the streets of New York, it wasn't raining. So we had to, you know, we brought in the rain machine and all of this stuff. How cool would it have been because, you know, Serling died in 75, but to have him available to do the commentaries on all of those episodes.
4: Yeah. Well, you know, the amazing thing is that, uh, there is some Sterling commentary on some episodes in some of the DVD releases and Blu-ray ah. because Rod uh, Rod taught Rod taught for a long time and in teaching he would very often use his own work as examples of things. So they were able to take some of Rod's teaching audio and put it to the episodes. For example, a walking distance uh, during a walking distance in Twilight Zone, um, you have Rod Sterling talking about you know, what he was thinking when he wrote, you know, this scene or whatever and talking about Gig, Gig Young's performance in the episode and, and things like that. And there's, there's a bunch like that, actually, that um, cause he did, he, he, he brought up his own work, you know, a lot as examples of what to do and what not to do, usually what not to do, again, because Rob was such a critic of his own work. Uh, so, so yeah, you do actually have that on, on a handful of episodes at least.
3: Oh, very cool. Where did he teach writing?
4: He taught, well, he taught it at Ithaca college. Uh, for several years from around the late, well, late 60s until he died in 75, um, really mid-60s until 75. Um, and he did tea, he taught at Antioch College. Actually, after the, we talked about, you know, there were three seasons of The Twilight Zone at a half an hour, and then it was one hour. Well, in between the third and fourth season, Rod Sterling decided he was going to take a break, and he went back to Yellow Springs, Ohio, where he went to college, he went to Antioch, and he taught. Uh, so he taught uh, several classes at Antioch in the interim between the third and fourth season of The Twilight Zone. And actually, even during the fourth season of The Twilight Zone, and that's one reason why he wasn't quite as involved with The Twilight Zone as much in the fourth and fifth seasons as he had been previously. Uh, but so he taught there, and, and he loved teaching. He, he 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 loved interacting with the students. Uh, it was something he was good at, and yeah, he really he really enjoyed it.
3: Wow! You know, imagine taking a writing course from Rod Serling, and maybe having one of your short stories with his his comments written on the margins. That's something you would frame. Let's talk about a a favorite episode of of many people. It's probably on most people's top 10 list. Burgess Meredith and his... Most famous episode, "Time Enough at Last." Tell listeners who don't who don't know about the episode, give us a little summary, and and we'll talk about that one.
4: Yeah, "Time Enough at Last" uh, was written by Rod Sterling, uh, based on a short story by Lynn Venable, uh, a woman who I don't think published more than a ha- half a dozen short stories in her life. I think, but this was one of them. <laughs> I don't think she published many many more. But and you know what? I shouldn't even say a woman because Lynn, I guess, could be a man. I don't even know for sure if it's a woman or a man. But anyway, Lynn Venable, and it's about a bank teller who loves to read. He loves to read not only. Does he love to read. He's obsessed with reading. He's a he's a bibliophile. He loves to read so much that he reads at work. And he's a bank teller, and he's making mistakes because he's constantly reading and not paying attention to his job. And one of his uh, daily rituals is he gets he to get away from his boss and and the customers. He will take his lunch break in the vault in the bank vault. So he'll go and he'll take a book and he'll go down to the vault and to get away and read. And one day he goes down to the vault to read, and there's a gigantic bang and. His glasses fall off and he wears you know very thick glasses and he stumbles out of the vault to deter- to discover that there's been a, a bomb has been dropped the nuclear a nuclear war has started the bomb has been dropped on America and he very well may be the last man on earth and he's, he's stumbling through the wreckage, finding his co-workers and his boss and everybody else. And the only thing that saved him was being in the bank vault. And he, you, you follow him through the episode, you know, as he's searching for food and, you know, it's kind of scavenging, searching for it, see if there's anybody still alive and gradually becoming more despondent, you know, realizing that he very well may be the last person on earth. And he finds a uh, sporting goods store with a gun, and he finds he, he finds a gun, and he finally just decides, I'm going to sh- I'm going to I'm going to end things. I'm going to you know, God wouldn't want me to be like you. God wouldn't wouldn't, wouldn't uh, hold it against me if I ended my life right now. But now because this is there's nothing to live for, and the moment he's going to pull the trigger, he sees in the distance the public library. And, and the public library had been destroyed, but of course the books are all there. And, and so he goes crazy. He goes, oh, I got all the books and all the books that I can read, all the books I could ever want. He's going to set them up. I'm going to read these in January and these in February and these in March. And he sets them all up on the steps, and he sits down to read that first book. And I have time enough at last to read books. And he bends over to read the first book, and his glasses fall off and break on the on the concrete. And he's so blind, you see that you know he's he's he can't read. He can't read a word, and he's completely he might as well be blind. And it's it's an ending that's a punch in the gut. I mean, it's just uh, you know I get goosebumps telling you telling you about it because really, like, I and I've seen it fifty times. You know, I, it's. It's, it's a punch in the gut because, at least as far as I'm concerned, this is the character in Twilight Zone history that did not deserve what he got. I, he did not, all he wanted to do was read, and this comes along, and, and Burgess Merritt's the last lines are it's not fair it's not fair at all he's crying and he says it's not fair and that's what you feel as a viewer i felt i mean you feel this is not fair this is not poetic justice this is this is maybe poetic but it ain't justice this is injustice you know and that's so that's that's the twi- it's one of the most famous twist endings in twilight's own history and that is the twist ending from the short story by the way i mean rod didn't come up with that that was the, the twist ending so it's a terrific ending and you know rod saw it that way in the book i quote from a letter that he responded to somebody had written to to, to tell him how cruel that ending was and he agreed. He says, yeah, you know, we were going for irony, but we kind of came across as, as sadism. It was really pretty cruel, you know. It was, but the amazing thing is years and years and years after seeing this episode 20 times and always thinking that that was the only possible interpretation of that episode, I've heard from people who say, no, he got exactly what he deserved because he wanted to be estranged from people. He wanted, all he wanted to do was read. He didn't want to be around people. He wanted to deal with people. He didn't want to interact with people. He just wanted to read. And he blew off the humanity for his whole life. And now he's going to have to live without humanity because, you know, he had to go read. And now the all taken away from him, he's going to get his just desserts. And nice as that makes sense, I think it's nonsense. I think it's bull. There's no way. There's no way. Because I think for what, what's on the screen, If you if you really see what's on the screen, it's not that he wants to get away and read. He's constantly trying to share his love of books with people, with his wife, who was one of the worst characters in Twilight Zone history. She tears the pages out of his books and you know scribbles on, in the, on the pages. I mean, but he tries to share his love of reading with his wife. He wants to read poetry to her. He tells her, oh, there's some beautiful things in here. Let me read this to you. Or he tells his boss, have you ever read David Copperfield? I want to tell you about the character. You know, There's this pet character in there. You know, this That's amazing. And so it was never an inter- totally an internal thing with him. And it wasn't like he was just tr- talking to these people, like talking down at them, saying how much... I I love this book. And, you know, he wanted to share it with him. He wanted to dialogue. He wanted the dialogue. So, so I think he was always yearning for human companionship. It was just that in this world, and by this world, I mean the world of that episode, not necessarily the world we live in. I think that, this is a point I make in the book, I think that that world of that episode is not necessarily our world, even before the bomb drops. I think before the bomb drops, that world is, is a dystopia. Is it's a world where intelligence is shunned, shunned upon, you know, frowned upon and shunned. It's a world where the word reader, reader, is in an epithet. I mean, his boss calls him, you are a reader. <laughs> like it's the worst thing in the world, you know, yeah, like, like epithet. A yeah, it's a pejorative. I mean, his wife, his wife is a, is a, is a terrible, terrible woman who, you know, you know, thinks that reading all, all literature is doggerel. I mean, so this is a world that really hates the written word and hates uh, literature. I think. And so he was the, he was living in that world. And so that's, he found himself to be the only one who had this love of words and he wanted to share it with people. And there was no way to share it in this particular you know setting.
3: Maybe that's one that uh, Rod Serling, if he could have, he, he would have taken that back and maybe did a, a, a rewrite. Um, a favorite non-Rod Serling episode for you, would it be the uh, the Howling Man?
4: Uh yes, I think that would probably be my top. Yeah. Yeah. For a long time that was my probably my favorite episode, period, actually. And, and over the years it's kind of slipped a little bit, but I still love it. Yeah, it's probably my favorite. Yeah.
3: So uh, tell us about the the episode. What happens? Howling Man is written
4: by Charles Beaumont based on his short story. And it's about a, a man on a walking trip through Europe during World War uh during World War Two and uh or before World War before World War Two. And he gets lost in a storm and he stops at a castle or a monastery uh, for help for for shelter from the storm. He just wants to stay for a little while and they try to turn him away. No, you can't stay here. And you know, why can't I stay here? I just, i just want some food. Just give me a night. And they can't stay here. Well, it turns out that the, that the, the, the brothers there believe that they have locked up the devil. They caught the devil and they've locked, have them locked up in a, in a cell. And of course they don't want anybody to know about it. Certainly not somebody who just walked in off the street and He uh you know they tell him to stay away from the door, don't listen to him howling. He's going to howl, he's gonna try to get out, just don't don't, you know, don't pay attention to him. And despite all the warnings, he doesn't believe them, and he lets the man who thinks is just a man out, and the man turns into the devil, and he is the devil, and he escapes. And so for the rest of this man's life, he's going to dedicate himself to recapture to making up for what he did. He's going to recapture the devil and the end of the episode. He shows that yes, he did. He recaptured him and he has to go out to call Brother Jerome to bring him back, but he has a the maid there. Don't go near the door. And of course the maid goes to the door and lets the guy lets him out again. Yeah. So and the and the catch at the end of the episode, the uh, closing narration is you can catch the devil, but you can't hold him long.
0: <laughs>
4: so I always loved that episode, the visuals of it, the direction of it. It's uh, it's a scary episode. It's, uh, it's a it's yeah, it's a great one. <laughs>
3: Uh, Where does on your list of top 10, or maybe it's not in your top 10, I don't know, I don't want to be presumptuous here, uh, Terror at 20,000 Feet with William Shatner?
4: Uh, I usually put that maybe just outside my top 10, somewhere like 11, 12, somewhere in there. Yeah, it's a great episode. Shatner is great in it. Uh, I always I defend William Shatner to the to the end. You know, if anybody thinks William Shatner overacts, he's a bad actor. Watch Nightmare Twenty Thousand Feet. That's a great performance and an understated performance, uh, especially compared to John Lithgow in the in the movie version of it. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I put that just right out right outside my top ten. Bro,
3: this is Richard Matheson's episode, right? Yep. Yes. Okay, just give us briefly a summary what happens. That's
4: uh, um, Bob Wilson is William Shatner's character's name. Bob Wilson is on is flying. Home with his wife uh, from a mental institution. He had been he had been uh, in an asylum. He had a nervous breakdown. I shouldn't say an asylum, but he had a nervous breakdown and he was in an institution for a while. And his nervous breakdown occurred on an airplane. And he's flying home from that with his wife. And he looks out the window and he sees a creature on the wing of the plane. And of course, in True Twilight's own fashion, he's the only one who can see the creature. Every time anybody else looks out the window, the creature has floated away or jumped away, and he, he can't convince anybody that there's a creature on the wing of the plane. But he has to trust his own senses. He has to trust that, yeah, I'm not going crazy. I'm not losing it. There is a creature out there, and he's able to steal a gun from a from a uh, security uh, officer on the plane, opens the hatch, and starts shooting at the at the at the gremlin. And the uh, you know the plane is able to land through the storm and everything else. And again, they think he's crazy. He's in a straitjacket and he says, he's okay. And he says, yeah, I'm, I, I know I'm okay. I'm the only one who does know right now. And then they pan up to the wing of the plane and you see the wing of the plane is, has been clawed up and it's, it's torn up, torn up the, 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 planks, you know, so something, you know, lightning didn't do that. Something there. So soon enough, they're going to realize that he was right, that there was something on, on the
3: plane. Uh, Shatner's... Um cast mate on Star Trek, George Takei or George Takei, Um Sulu, Mr. Sulu on Star Trek. He appeared in an episode called The Encounter and um, I haven't seen it. Um, and I don't know if, whether it's because it, it wasn't um, included in the syndication when, uh, but what is so, what is so controversial about uh, this episode, The Encounter?
4: Well, Today, probably not too much, but at the time it was considered controversial. And yes, it was not included in the initial syndication package. So it was not seen for like 25 years after it aired. And what was controversial about it was it's a, it's a good episode. It's about uh, George Takei plays a gardener. He's a gardener for this man. And he's uh, on the grounds and he uh, this guy is cleaning out his attic. And he George Takei goes up to meet this guy in the attic to talk about whatever, talk about the, the lengthy the yard or whatever it may be. And the guy has a samurai sword there and they start talking about the samurai sword. And it turns out that the guy says that he got the samurai sword during World War II. He killed a Japanese soldier and he took the samurai sword from him. And George Takei admits that, um, you know, during World War II, his family had helped to guide the planes into Pearl Harbor, that they were in Honolulu, they were in, Honolulu- they were in uh, Hawaii, and they helped to guide the planes to their targets. And many Many uh, Asian American groups, of course, said, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa! There is no evidence whatsoever that any Asian American was a spy, you know, that aided the the, the Japanese in, in the attack. And to to you know to insinuate that is really problematic. And I would agree. I would agree. Even in a fictional setting, that's not uh, yeah, not a good message to be sending. So so after the complaints, the episode was just it was it wasn't aired again, and they just held that as syndication. And now you can." Find it on obviously the DVD collections and things like that. It's a
3: pretty good episode. How did um, Rod Serling make out? He he owned half of the uh, the show uh, with syndication. I mean, he should have been set for life. You would think so, yeah. And and
4: he would have been if he hadn't sold his rights to the show back to CBS. Uh, this is the, probably the worst decision of Rod Serling's life. I mean, it's it's unfortunate. I mean, uh, but what Rod Serling did was. He owned half the show. Half the show. He had the, he had half the films, you know, he owned 50% right of the films and everything else. And Rod, after the show went off the air, he was very impatient with how long it took to get into syndication. Uh, one of the things, again, I think there's a misconception. I think people say, oh, he didn't know how much it would be worth. And he didn't know about syndication. And he didn't know about merchandising. None of that's really true. He did know. But he was upset that, and, and I, this is in letters, this is, you know, I've, I've read, you know, his correspondence, he was upset that shows that lasted not as long as the Twilight Zone and ended their runs after the Twilight Zone were already in syndication making money and the Twilight Zone was sitting there collecting dust. And why am I not getting my residual? Why isn't this in syndication? And he was upset. So he finally just said, screw it. And he, and he didn't want to fight with him anymore. And he sold his his interest back to CBS. And he sold his interest back to CBS for roughly – Seven hundred or eight hundred thousand dollars. Now, in nineteen sixty-five, eight hundred thousand dollars probably about eight million, eight million today. So it wasn't peanuts. I mean, it was a nice chunk of change, but it was it's worth a hundred times that now. I mean, he, he, if he would held on to it, his great, great, great grandchildren would have been set for life. You know, and as it was, he was set, and his kids were set. But that's pretty, pretty much probably about it.
3: Rod Serling, his life, work, and imagination—that's the book. Nick uh, Nicholas Parisi and again uh, Serling Fest 2022 coming to Binghamton, New York in August go to serlingfest2022.com and uh, Nicholas what a pleasure hanging out with you for the last two <laughs> two hours I learned a lot
4: uh, Sam here Richard thanks, thanks so much I had a great time
3: alright alright that's it for me my thanks to Carlos and Ryan back next week with a brand new program hope you'll be along for the ride in the meantime don't be afraid there's nothing concealed that won't be revealed nothing hidden That won't be made known Which you hear in the dark Speak in the light What I say in a whisper Proclaim from the housetops Move over Aphrodite I'm coming home Good night
1: Happy birthday to you Hey Where's mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means there's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So can we cut the cake now? You betcha.
2: No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca.